Hello. This week's a little different as we draw close to Christmas. I've decided to go into the confessional. The Voice of the Listener and Viewer Organisation, which makes the case for high-quality radio and television programmes and supports public service broadcasting, held its autumn conference in November. Guests included Rodri Talfan-Davis, the BBC's Director of Nations, Helen Bowden, the former BBC Director of Radio, and the first female Director of BBC News, Mark Dalmazer, former controller of BBC Radio 4 and Radio 7, and Richard Eyre, a former member of the BBC Trust and a former member of the Ofcom Content Board. He chaired one of its final sessions, which was with me. Here's some extracts. Good afternoon. We've got one of the towering figures of broadcast journalism over the last 50 or more years, editor of The Tonight Programme, editor of Panorama, editor of Nationwide, editor of This Week, presenter of a range of programmes, the Sunday programme on Radio 4, presenter of Channel 4's Right to Reply, presenter of a programme, can't remember what it was called, was on the air till recently with you. Feedback, that's it. <laughs> Roger was also the guy who led the BBC's first tentative attempts to level up from BBC Manchester. Roger and the teams that have worked for and with him have earned innumerable industry awards, public plaudits, political criticism, especially from the late Mrs Thatcher. And Roger is sometimes credited as having brought down the Independent Broadcasting Authority and ended the licence for Thames Television. So we'll talk about all of those things, but let's not start at the beginning, but at the end. So you can get this off your chest, Roger, because for the last 15 years, I've been an intermittent guest on the feedback program. And every time Roger has recorded an interview with me, as soon as they stop recording, I say, when are you going to give up this program and let someone like me earn an honest buck and take over? And then blow me three months ago, I turn on my radio and hear this guy saying he's been sacked and that uh, he doesn't really want to go. So tell us the truth. What happened? Why did you go? Why did the BBC get rid of you? What had you done, Roger? Well, you've departed for your immaculate uh, standards of journalism. Um, It's a perfectly reasonable decision for the BBC to take. I mean, I'd done the thing for 23 years. I'd have liked to have gone on a bit longer, wouldn't we all, all the time. So it's a perfectly reasonable decision to take. And I had no bitterness, no complaints. However, there's always a however, there's always a but, it did give me an opportunity to vent in the last programme and so on about the issues I cared about in terms of accountability. And the other thing is, as anybody who's worked for the BBC will know, they don't handle these things very well. In fact, they are inept. In fact, they're incompetent and frequently <laughs> insensitive. And all they had to do was, in my case, was Roger Gray, you've done it for a long time, come and have a drink uh, with one, two commissioning editors, 15 minutes max, maybe 20 minutes. Thank you very much. Any more ideas you've got, we'll listen goodbye. Thank you. But at the BBC, as long as I remember it, and I've been in it for, was in it for over 50 odd years, whatever, or contacted with it, can't do this. They can't do it face to face. They can't manage talent. It's very bizarre. So I have a slight anger about the way it was done, but no, no anger at all about the fact it's been done. And I'm delighted that uh, Andrea Catherwood is presenting it. She's a really good choice. She's a really strong, tough, independent journalist. 
and I think she'll do very well. But you are, of course, now in competition with her because you have launched your own podcast doing the same thing. What's it called? Remind uh, us. Oh, Roger Burton's Bean Watch. But, I mean, that podcast you're only going to have, you hope to have influence. They maybe have 1,300, 1,500 people will listen to it at some point, and you hope that it, it might impact upon the debate. But you compare something with feedback, with if you com- continue, repeat some other things. You know, it has about, uh, what, almost a million listeners. Uh, that's a vast difference. But I wanted to speak out at the end because I had a mounting frustration or have had throughout. And I think it's the frustration you only get with a member of your family, you know, where you've, I mean, I regard myself as a critical friend of the BBC. In a way, I feel I'm a child of the organisation. And when they don't behave as you think they should behave, uh, you get very cross with them. So remember the name Roger Bolton's Beeb Watch, available on all reputable podcast providers. Is it on BBC Sounds by any chance? Uh, It is not. Let's tell you briefly the uh, couple of things which drove me around the bend of the BBC. One is BBC's increasingly in the last few years to have the corporate press office determine whether people appeared on the programme or not. Uh, It shouldn't be any of their business. It should be automatically built into the deal over the licence fee that the BBC is answerable in all its forms. After all, you own it. You know, if you have shares in a company, a publicly quoted company, at least they'll have an annual general meeting. You can go down there. You can put them. You can ask a question or you can put something. How do you, what do you do with the BBC? You pay for it. Do you honestly think you're accountable? We heard Rodri this morning. Um, and he was a very, I mean, maybe future director general, a very persuasive advocate. But actually, it was the old BBC line, which is, we will decide what's good for you. We will then tell you what we've decided and you will support us. You should support us. Well, come on, that's not accountability, as I understand it. And the other thing, so apart from that uh, problem of, of general accountability, the, the idea was um, uh, so often with the, when they weren't putting up people to come on the program, oh, it's, um, we don't think it's the right time. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding. The right time is when the audience wants to ask the question, not when the BBC wants to answer it. I understand the BBC feels it all the time. It's under great pressure and attack, and we don't want to give up hostages before, to fortune. But... It doesn't realise its greatest strength is its audience. And if you want the audience to fight for you, you've got to feel that you listen to them and not listen after you've made a decision. Listen sometimes when you're in the process of making a decision. So I enjoyed the opportunity to say that at the end. Sorry. It's, um, it's bizarre, really. I, I'm quite pleased that the BBC declined to take part in most of your latter programmes because it gave me the opportunity of doing so. I used to get calls from Roger saying, oh, BBC have turned me down again. Will you come and talk? Sadly, I didn't get paid. Why was I not paid? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I got paid. I got paid £1,000 for doing the show. Uh, that's, what, two days' work and listening to things. The budget for a Radio 4 programme, like feedback, is roughly £5,000 per edition. Now, you work the staffing costs <laughs> and work everything out. And that's why he didn't get paid. And <laughs> Okay, let's go back just half a century. Panorama, under Roger's stewardship, Panorama did a series of fantastic programmes. So we're not going to talk about those. But it also went to Carrick Moor. Carrick Moor is a little village just across the border inside Northern Ireland. And in 1979, Roger perhaps having inside knowledge, because we now know that the British government at the time was talking through an intermediary at that time to the IRA. However, Roger had the foresight to send a team to Dublin to start making a programme, Jeremy Paxman and a producer and a crew, a programme about the history of the IRA, trying to find out how 
flexible the IRA, the modern IRA might be about the idea of political change. The producer got a phone call in the hotel in Dublin from someone, according to Wikipedia, an anonymous phone call saying, if you come to Carrick Moor tomorrow morning at a set time, you'll see something interesting. And if you believe the BBC's version at the time, the um, producer and camera crew then went to Carrick Moor and at the set time they arrived in the village and shortly after they arrived, a number of men wearing balaclava helmets came out onto the streets with automatic weapons and started stopping the traffic, quizzing drivers, parading up and down the road, blocking the road. All the while, the normal folk of Carrick Moor went about their daily business. They were shopping, they were taking their kids to school with these IRA men amongst them. BBC filmed for a while. If you believe the story, the BBC didn't talk to any of the IRA people, certainly didn't interview them. And after a while, having filmed for a few minutes, the BBC then headed back south an hour and a half to Dublin. Nobody knew this had happened for some days. Somebody at the high levels in BBC Northern Ireland was told about it, but the boss of BBC Northern Ireland wasn't told about it. And almost two weeks later, he found himself at what must have been a really ghastly dinner party in London, where somebody in government said to him, I hear your chaps have been uh, filming with the IRA in Carrick Moor. The controller of BBC Northern Ireland said, rubbish, nonsense, wouldn't do anything like that then had the wisdom to make a phone call back to base to discover that it had indeed happened and the controller of Northern Ireland hit the roof. It didn't hit the roof as hard as Margaret Thatcher did when she was said uh, by a cabinet colleague to have gone scatty in cabinet, condemning the BBC. And James Callaghan, then leader of the opposition, uh, said that the BBC had set out deliberately to manufacture the news. William Whitelaw, the Home Secretary, summoned the BBC's chairman at the time and said, something must be done, you must make an example of them. Roger Bolton was sacked as editor of Panorama. A few days later, after the BBC's journalists had protested, Roger Bolton was unsacked as the editor of Panorama and resumed his role. The film never went out, or at least never went out for about 20 years or so, now is the time you can safely tell us the truth. What happened? Why did you go to Carrick Moor? Did you really go to Carrick Moor not knowing what was going to happen? Were you being used by the RA? Roger, your chance. I never went to Carrick Moor. It's a long story. I'll try and tell it three gobbits. The first gobbit is why try and make the programme. And by the time we're there in about 1979, the troubles have been going on. Well, by some, you know, if you'd start them at 68, you'd say they were 11 years. You could start a year later, maybe. The troubles have been going on. Terrible things happening. I'd been backwards and forwards there quite a lot. And what was frustrating about the coverage was essentially we were looking at the results of what was wrong rather than what was wrong. In other words, we were attracted by violence and by bombs. We were effectively being summoned by the paramilitaries. They committed something dreadful. We went and reported. I should say at this point, people who were doing the real work and the real heroes were in the Northern Ireland newsroom day by day, and they included this man. But we were coming from the mainland. Uh, and we had a situation in the House of Commons where um, it wasn't just Mr. Mrs. Thatcher. You should remember Roy Mason just before Mrs. Thatcher came to power as Northern Ireland Secretary, who was as uh, Thatcherite in these matters as you could imagine. There was a front bench consensus not to talk about this issue. Lots of opinion polls in the country suggesting that a significant number of people in the country, maybe a majority, maybe not, but quite closely thought that Ireland perhaps should be united. And you had the situation on the ground. I thought the role of Panorama was to try and examine what 
was going on in the sense of what were the IRA? Why were they able to continue to operate in the way they could? What were they really about? Were they a Marxist organization? What sort of island did they want? How come they could manage to be both Marxist as they were and could get support from right-wing Americans, et cetera, et cetera? After 10 years, at least, a long, cool look at what this organization was, what it wanted and whether it was, and how it was supported was necessary. And the key thing that made me want to do it was to go to a briefing by a man called Brigadier Glover. You were probably men of him, head of intelligence in Northern Ireland. That's one off the record briefing saying we can't beat the IRA. The IRA can't beat us. They only need a very small number of people to operate and be an irritant, given if not the support of a significant section of the population, certainly the tolerance. So there's got to be a political solution. So you have intelligence, you have all of these people saying there's got to be a solution and there's no debate in the House of Commons and the political parties won't have anything to discuss this. And Mrs. Thatcher saying this is simply a matter of criminality. So it seemed to me the role of something like feedback, uh, of feedback, how oh, that would sound, a panoramist to go and report. So what I authorised the team to do, part one, was to look at the history of up to the point that the officials and the provisionals had, had, had separated. They went a bit further than that. And they went and filmed at Carrick Moor. But there are two things about Carrick Moor. One is no film was ever transmitted. Secondly, there were really difficult editorial decisions to be made about whether you would transmit the material or not. The argument for transmitting it would be this. The IRA were able to occupy a village, walk up and down with guns, a village 10 miles from the nearest police station, and they'd done it before. So actually, this is a reality the British government on the ground does not control all Northern Ireland. The argument against this is this is a setup for the BBC. I think it probably was a setup for the BBC because what happened was our team went in Dublin, talked to Sinn Fein, asked about what they were doing. Why should we believe you? Get a call immediately afterwards at their hotel. There's obviously Sinn Fein, IRA, deciding this might be an opportunity to get the BBC to witness what they're probably going to do anyway, but they might not have done on that day covered by others, by the way, but it's a separate matter. The key question is, or for me was, yes, you go, yes, you find out what's happening, but you're like a, a print journalist who brings back his notebook. There's one thing, which is the collection of information. The second question is whether you broadcast it and how you broadcast it and so on. Well, we never got to the second point. Let me interrupt you. Okay. The BBC spokesman at the time, when the stuff hit the fan, said the BBC had gone to Carrick Moore, quote, as a normal journalistic response to an anonymous phone call. Are you really saying that your people getting an anonymous phone call, not knowing who it was from, what it was for, just saying, come to a place in what was then known by hack journalists as bandit country, are you really saying that the normal journalist's response is just to go? What if there'd been a bomb set off as they arrived for them to film? What if they'd taken some British soldiers or RUC men and women hostage for Panorama to film. Are you really saying that a normal journalistic response, when someone just phones you out of the blue and says, hi, you don't know me, I'm Seamus, come to Carrick Moor tomorrow at 11, is it normal just to go with your film crew? Well, let me face it another way. Would you not go for any tip-off? I've just said what that they had a pretty good idea. They'd been to talk to Sinn Féin. They did, as they'd been to other parties, they'd explained what we were trying to do. They did want a representative from Sinn Féin. We're not them. Banned that became subsequently. And then they got to call offers, of course. Now, how honest they are with me 
my producer report. I'm not entirely sure, but obviously they knew it was connected with that. But of course, you're absolutely right. If you go in those circumstances and something happens and you witness it, you have to ask yourself, have I caused this? I was only consulted afterwards, by the way. I didn't know until it happened at the time. But I don't think they caused it. And I know they didn't cause it in this sense, that the IRA was doing this sort of thing relatively frequently. The year before, I'd been caught, almost caught, with an army officer. I was driving. He was in the passenger seat. We were going through that, not far from there, actually. And the IRA mounted a roadblock, and he spotted it quickly, and we turned around. These roadblocks were happening. That's not a surprise. Was it done for us? Perhaps it was on this occasion. Should it have been transmitted, we didn't have the chance to make up our minds. However, you say it wasn't transmitted. I think what you just said suggests what must surely be the case, that if it hadn't leaked, if it hadn't become cause of a major political row for the BBC, you'd have gone on and made the programme about the IRA perfectly properly. You'd have used that. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have used that uh, footage to illustrate how they're able to operate on uh, uh, streets yes. of yeah. the United Kingdom yes. without interference? I would probably used it, but I would, I would have spelt out the circumstances in which it was gathered. Just as you know, you were handed stuff by ETA from Spain, terrorist organisation. What it was up to, you have very think very hard. Do you use it? Actually, that additional set of problems with that. You weren't there when the material was shot. How do you know, etc. You're measuring it up against a number of difficult issues, but I think in the end I would have probably put it up, but with a warning. But in the, a wider context, I, I'd say just a couple of other things. The reason it got it really into difficulty was the BBC had... Ex- Mrs Thatcher had just come to power. In the run-up to the election, her closest friend, Erin Eve, who was... Uh, she depended absolutely on in terms of Northern Ireland, had been assassinated, blown up, as it happened not by the IRA, but by another Republican group, the INLA. She had no experience of Northern Ireland. Remember, she's going to be, uh, from the moment she becomes prime minister, or, or her children are under threat. She's later on, as we know, in 1983, blown up herself. She then loses her principal private secretary later on, Ian Gow. There's no, that's afterwards, but there's no reason why you would expect Mrs. Satcher to be sympathetic or to understand these issues. You would expect it of a lot of people around her. But what happened in 19, and she didn't like the BBC, what happened at this, this, this event was the BBC had exceeded its borrowing powers. And the BBC board, not in my view, but I'm prejudiced, the greatest collection of broadcasting minds, uh, were negotiating with the government in a difficult situation. They wanted a license fee increase. They were dealing with the charter issues. They just think they're getting somewhere with a sympathetic William Whitelaw behind the one or two others. And these bloody idiots in Panorama are going bloody well filmed in Northern Ireland. Then the BBC governors are thinking, what do we do? What do we do? Oh, well, uh, and then someone says, well, we don't think the controller of Northern Ireland should have been concerned and he wasn't. Ah, we can harden up on that consultation issue and therefore we can sack the editor of Panorama because of that. And I went into the interview, disciplinary interview, to be sacked. Before I'd gone in there, Bernard Ingham had been told I had been sacked. Bernard Ingham being the government. Anyway, BBC Bay and BBC screwed up the whole process. And tell us us briefly, briefly, the conversation when you were sacked. What did they say you were being sacked for? Uh, it was failure. Uh, well, one of the interesting things here, being the BBC, of course, is there was never a formal charge. I wasn't allowed to see the report on what had happened. I wasn't allowed to see any evidence about how many uh, It was that I hadn't, there was a standing instruction, I don't know what the number was, that it, when events in Northern Ireland, well, when people were covering controversial events in Northern Ireland, the control of Northern Ireland had to be consulted. 
This, in a way, goes back to the time when the pro well, the Protestant ascendancy, shall we say, controlled Northern Ireland and didn't need like people like Alan Wicker and others coming there. But anyway, it was there. I had consulted the Director of News and Current Affairs, for whom I'd written a paper and who had actually uh, encouraged me to make the programme, the Head of Programmes Northern Ireland, the News Editor of Northern Ireland. Now, the controller had just been appointed, didn't know. I don't want to go into the internal politics. But I'll add a bit of the internal politics because yeah. I was in the Belfast and the head of programs in Northern Ireland was consulted, at least informed, and he did not tell his direct boss, the controller, Jimmy Hawthorne. Why did he not tell him? I think because he thought he was not competent to handle these issues and he was probably right. What Jimmy then did, Jimmy Hawthorne, was send an open TEDx, which got to everybody, saying how outrageous I was because we'd done another programme and so on. But I think what it illustrates, if I look back on what I failed to do, which is a good thing to do, when I had the privilege of being in a very important positions, I failed to get uh, a proper series of programmes which tried to understand and take a long look at the support for the Republican movement. I failed to properly ensure people could examine the, the contradictions within it. We failed to confront Sinn Féin IRA with the obvious question, which is, why on earth should people in the north of Ireland with a very distinct set of identity different from yours and rather more heavily armed than you, agree peaceably to be part of some larger, as it happened, federal island built on a Marxist model? But we never got to that point because... Mrs. Thatcher essentially wanted it treated as a criminal issue, and the BBC governors were worried about the future of the BBC. Roger, your determination to report across a range of programmes you made for the BBC and for Thames Television, your determination to report and to understand events in Ireland, North and South, is second to none other than uh, your reporting colleague, Peter Taylor. The oh, he's out. The two of you and, share and John Ware did exceptional work too. The two of you particularly share those honours. However, we'll move on, except to say, I asked you what they said to you when they sacked you. Much more interesting is what did they say to you the day they unsacked you? Well, the day they sacked me, they said, I think, it would, Roger, it would be a very good idea for you to spend a period because you haven't properly understood the managerial role in the BBC. It would be very good for you to spend a time in secretariat. And after a while, the managing director of television may agree to you returning. <laughs> That's what they said. <laughs> you move. I just say what I'm, I'm obsessive about this. I think that problem that we I failed to do in Ireland, we failed to do about Brexit, and this is because I believe the BBC, at times of controversy, retreats to a position where it looks at what the argument is in Parliament and says, if it's that and it's that, we'll represent that, and that's our duty done. So, in terms of Brexit, what we did not do was the second part of the argument. The first part of the argument is, you know, should we consider leaving Europe? The second part of the argument is, what are we leaving for? Is it likely to be better? Who are the people who are pushing for Brexit? What do they want? There are a whole range of other issues. That programme about Britain after Brexit that the BBC should have made, it didn't make, because it was dangerous and controversial. But in not doing that, it did a disservice to the public. And I think that thread is throughout the BBC's coverage, particularly when it's under pressure on the licence fee. In the end, you retreat and you report the argument as it is in conducted in Parliament. That sounds 
proper, but it leaves vast areas, I think, where the public deserves to be informed and often isn't. We've not colluded in what Sorry. questions I would ask or how Roger would answer them, except he did say, as I as we came in, that whatever I asked him, he would bring it around to Brexit. Well done, old boy. Well done. Let's move on from um, <laughs> from Panorama to Nationwide. I had a particular interest in your editorship of Nationwide because on a very few and invariably catastrophic occasions, I was presenting the Northern Ireland opt-out to uh, Nationwide. And amongst the journalists in Northern Ireland, you had a reputation of being the serious editor of Nationwide, who was making it a serious programme and no more skateboarding ducks. Does anyone remember <laughs> skateboarding ducks? Uh, You're unfair of the skateboarding duck. I, I did look, when I took over the programme, I did look at it. It was funny. <laughs> but you didn't do it again. But you did have a, a more clear, it seemed to me at the time, a more clear determination to report serious current events and not simply magazine current events. Nationwide is a bit of a mess, or my role in it was a bit of a mess, and I was the last editor, so some people I think I was the undertaker. It's a complex story, but basically, Nationwide, when it was first devised, bridged that gap between not quite the toddler's truce that used to exist, but between six and seven. And it, its basic strength and its real strength was that it could draw all the different regions of the BBC and national regions. And in a way, when there'd be terrible storms and things, it could be a unifying factor. And when not, it could just actually inform you. It began to run out of steam, like these all things do. And, the, and, and I think, to be honest, that the people make the programme tried to take the punters for granted. You know, there's a moment where... So it needed a bit of rebooting. But it had been decided by the BBC that actually they were going to get rid of Nationwide. They were going to reorganise the early evening. And I was sat in a meeting with Alistair Milne and others where they said it would happen a year after I took over and there would be a News and Courage Fest programme from uh, 6 to 6.30 and then for the first time putting both together and then there'd be the regional opt-out. And my job was to harden up, which I wanted to do Nationwide in preparation for it ceasing to exist and another programme existing in its place. Well, what happened was, in the end, that Alistair Milne, a bad director general, good man in many ways, bad director general, uh, couldn't carry people with him or couldn't enforce his will. Either way, it didn't happen. And uh, so we were up, up river without a paddle, and I persuaded David Dimbleby to come across. So you're right to say I wanted to harden it up. But the, what I did feel strongly about, and where I think the one show is a disgrace and a tragedy, actually, is that what the great BBC strength still is, its regions. And in Nationwide, reinvented, it has a perfect vehicle there, and it would strengthen regional journalism, which is in there. And the BBC doesn't see that, and fundamentally doesn't see it because it still remains a desperately metropolitan organisation. So I really think it would just work on someone else. So I'm guilty, for, in many ways, for not pushing that case harder. And uh, maybe I'm guilty of overestimating the interest of a six o'clock audience in the failure of a Russian grain harvest, which was one of the charges put to me. But I did believe that. I think it's a program. One of the things I most admire, do you remember when, uh, in terms of comedy, was when um, in the first series of that wonderful comedy with David Jason. Only Fools and Horses. Only Fools and Horses. The grandfather died. So you had a decision then. What do you do? And they had the courage to have the first episode of the second series had been the funeral. In other words, they saw the strength of the program and had the courage to make changes in time. The BBC, in my view, failed to see the strength of Nationwide, 
and didn't make necessary changes. And I think when you look at the one show today and you think what the BBC could now offer that nobody else offers in terms of a, a regional, national regional programme that pulls things together, that's it. So I look on that as a, a failure, actually. And when the BBC did then, after you'd left... Uh, replace Nationwide. It did so with a program which was so catastrophically awful. I can't even remember what it was called. 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes. Ah, yes. It felt like... Well, it wasn't different. It pretended to be something and it wasn't. It actually was a program which tried to hold the air while the BBC management tried to get its act together and reorganise things. However, however, by that time, you had very sensibly gone to Thames Television where... uh, No, I was fired from the BBC. um, Yes, but you were fired from the BBC, but you went to Thames, didn't you? Yeah, I didn't want to leave the BBC. No, well, right. But you went. You went yes, to Thames. I went to Thames. You went to Thames. And uh, one of the programmes you will be most remembered for, uh, rightly so for all sorts of reasons, is, you know which one I'm going to say, is Death on the Rock. So this was in 1988. Eight. Um, three members of the IRA were shot dead uh, by members of the SAS on Gibraltar as the members of the IRA were allegedly preparing to uh, plant a bomb, though they had not, it emerged later, actually planted the bomb yet. Roger very rapidly sent out a crew to, um, under uh, Julian Mannion as the reporter, to uh, Gibraltar. They interviewed as many eyewitnesses as they could find, all of whom, with different perspectives and different uh, stories, but not contradictory stories, testified that they had heard no warning shouts from the undercover SAS people and variously claimed that the um, IRA two men and one woman had been shot in the back or shot uh, when they were lying down having uh, surrendered. The programme went out. It won awards. The British government, it's fair to say, were thermonuclear, tried to stop the programme going out, tried to instruct the independent broadcasting authority to to ban it. The IBA stood their ground. The programme went out. Subsequently, one of at the inquest in Gibraltar, one of the people interviewed by your team withdrew his testimony, withdrew the statement that he'd made to Julian Mannion. The others gave consistent testimony, but it threw some doubt upon the accuracy of the programme and therefore Thames Television commissioned a High Court barrister, distinguished uh, barrister Richard Rampton, and a Tory peer, Lord Whittlesham, to investigate. And their report, after some months, largely cleared the programme, not, um, well, in interesting terms, and said that it had rightly examined one possibility of of why and how. No, 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 it didn't say that. I'll tell you what it said. What its criticisms were that the guy who gave evidence, who withdrew his evidence, even though the coroner said it contained information that they'd found out for the first time, that we didn't make clear enough the circumstances in which we got that. It was a written form. The second thing of the, I think, four witnesses we talked to, none of whom had heard or seen any challenge by the, the British soldiers, they said two of them might not have been able to hear anyway because they were standing on a curbside in the road and the noise might have stopped them. However, the soldiers themselves, when interviewed, we assume it was them at the inquest, uh, admitted that they didn't know whether they'd given warnings or uh, either. But those were the two uh, criticisms. The rest, they said some rather nice things. But um, I think the thing, you know, why do we make it? Well, 
I, you know, when I first heard the uh, what had happened in Gibraltar, I thought, well, uh, there's a pattern here. There's nothing for us to do in this week. What tends to happen is when the IRA meets the SES in an operation the IRA is, is carrying out, not, not many people um, survive. And in a way, the IRA themselves regard this as just, just a matter of war. And I forget the name of the place, but not long before there'd been a similar incident. So I said, what is there to do? The following, and we were, there were briefings, you'd have heard them on Today program, saying the IRA were armed, they'd put a bomb in the car, they even descri- described the nature of the bomb. Well, open and shut case, why bother what there is for two? Although, you know, back here, your mind that allegations shoot to kill is going on in Northern Ireland, but, you know, it's never been proven, but... Anyway, and then Jeffrey Howe stands up on Monday afternoon in the House of Commons and says, um, there wasn't a bomb in the car, uh, and the IRA members were unarmed. And then the roof came off. So you knew, I knew, because being old now, whatever, that particularly as one of the people involved was a woman, they'd be, you know, uh, she'd be there like the Virgin Mary painted on a gable end. The propaganda war would take off. So it seemed to be an absolutely proper thing to say, what happened? And, uh, you know, I confess to the end, I don't know what happened. I do know what didn't happen. And what didn't happen is what the British government said happened. But from the beginning, and perhaps, you know, we went to find as many witnesses as possible. We got as many as possible. We couldn't find anybody who stood up the government's position. We then, I kept going, I think I went twice, three times to the MOD, saying, can you give me an on-the-record interview? Can you give me an off-the-record interview? Nope. I kept them informed throughout the programme, what we were doing, expecting they would do the old trick of wait until the end to know exactly what's in the programme. And then the very last moment, give us an interview. Mm -hmm. And at such a length that we'd have to cut the other programme back. That didn't happen. I then was worried, obviously, toward... I became convinced, it is the case, the IRA were planning what we would call legitimately an atrocity. Because if the bomb, which they intended to plant, but they hadn't planted, it was a rehearsal, had been placed where it was, they would have hit, yes, of course, soldiers and bandsmen. No question. Others who'd come along to watch would have been killed, blown up, maimed, whatever. This would have been an atrocity. So on the one hand, we're doing that, but I uh, outlining what happened. But on the other hand, I wanted to show what the IRA were intending. I went to the, BB, uh, went to the MOD and asked them, uh, we want to blow up a car with the same amount of gel ignite that we think, or you say, was planned ultimately to be used. We needed their permission. No, no way. So in the end, what I did was to go to Northern Ireland and we interviewed the wife of a headmaster who had been caught in an earlier blast and who was, couldn't speak and who was in a very bad way. So it was important to make clear that there was no question about what the IRA intended. But there's equally no question the government's account about what they knew. I could go into massive other details about why I don't believe the government's account, but I still don't know what happened. But I went to see Willie Whitelaw, who was then, by afterwards, who I'd known because he was MP for Penrith, afterwards, about a year later when I was writing something, and I talked to him about it, and he said, look, I can't talk about this, but just look at who we sent. If you want to capture these people, and then he stopped, you don't put the SAS in. And, the, and you know, I don't blame the SAS. I mean, put yourself in the SAS shoes. I think they were probably briefed that the IRM members were armed. They may well have been briefed that they had a bomb or something. I don't know. If you're going to tackle people who you know are killers, you know, and you maybe have been briefed that they're on whatever, you probably don't ask, uh, excuse me, um, you know. Roger, the, um, you're, you're still passionate about this. I, I, Sorry. 
by no, no, not at all. By the time that program went out, uh, you were the opposition. As far as I was concerned, I remember thinking, first of all, that it was a brilliant program, and I was ashamed that the BBC hadn't made it first. It was a fantastic and courageous piece of. Uh, but the BBC made it second. It did make it second. It did make it second. No. Being second doesn't count. No, but I think what, what one thing I think again another scandal which is revealing about the BBC is a very good team from Spotlight in Northern Ireland who did current affairs went to Northern Ireland uh, went to Gibraltar a little later than us and separately made their own program came to very similar conclusions they had a very good reporter who uh, then went on to uh, Channel Four News and they put it out in Northern Ireland and the BBC refused to put it out in the mainland. Now, what normally happened in these circumstances, if you have a regional current affairs program that says something as good as that, it, it or most of it gets transmitted in Newsnight or whatever it's available. Yeah. The BBC took the view, no. Yeah. And this reveals a truth about Northern Ireland, which again aggravated me intensely. What essentially people were worried about is what people on the mainland would think or what Mrs. Thatcher saw. So there you have people in Northern Ireland who were suffering brilliant, in my view, brave local journalists reporting what's happening. And the BBC and the government, to a degree, mainly the government, colliding to protect the population from some of this detail. And people like, I'm not just saying, people like Richard and I fought against that, but that was a tendency. And the awful truth is the English still don't care much about what happens in Northern Ireland, hence the problems about Brexit. In the interest of... When did we have a last history? In the interest of Ireland on the BBC? We've got to move on. But in the interest of impartiality, it wouldn't be fair to leave the impression that the BBC decided not to broadcast this programme across the UK when it normally would have been. It was a regional programme, but it wasn't repeated in Great Britain, as often very good regional programmes were impeccably stated. So. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and now we're going to move on to one more issue before we take questions. And that is that you are a very unusual person in broadcast journalism, in my experience, in one respect, in that you're out as a Christian. <laughs> you're a Christian. And the only uh, other out Christian that I can recall working closely with was Martin Bashir. So I find, kind. It, I find it <laughs> I find it difficult because I'm I'm not a I don't have a faith. I find it difficult to reconcile your commitment, absolute lifelong proven commitment to evidence-based factual journalism, how you square that with your faith-based commitment to life decisions. And I just wonder whether you'd like to square the circle. Well, you can find how I square that circle or not next week. And that's it for now. Please consider supporting this podcast for just £1.99 per month. This will ensure our survival. You'll find the link to subscribe on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. Please do consider doing this. And you can get in touch with interview ideas and questions on Twitter by using at Roger or on Mastodon using at RogerBolton at MastodonApp.uk. Or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com. And if you didn't know already, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was produced by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quingenti. It was a good egg production. Have a very good Christmas. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>